But we are starting talking about health care. And I know Mike Smith was talking about this as well. A couple of points. The decision, the announcement yesterday, sending people in need for certain cancer treatments to Bellingham. But also safety in hospitals, given what happened at Surrey Memorial Hospital this past weekend. 24-year-old Alex Joseph Flett uh, has been charged with uh, assault with a weapon and aggravated assault in relation uh, to the incident that occurred on Saturday night at Surrey Memorial Hospital. The male who has been charged does have a criminal history. That was Surrey RCMP uh, talking about the stabbing that took place at Surrey Memorial. We are joined now by Dr. Sanjiv Gandhi, who is the former chief of cardiac surgery at BC Children's Hospital, now second deputy leader for the BC Green Party. Uh, Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, I know we are going to talk more about uh, cancer patients and getting treated in Bellingham uh, a little bit later this half hour, but I wanted to start with safety, specifically uh, when we look at what happened in Surrey Memorial, and I know you can't go into the specific details, but how concerning should that be or how concerned are you when we're talking about people being safe in our healthcare settings? Well, very. I mean, hospital security for sure is a major problem. I mean, in recent months, there have been many publicized stories, not just Surrey, but in addition to that, there and there was an incident at Royal Inland last summer, an incident also involving a knife at BC Women's in the fall, another one at VGH last winter. And, I mean, and certainly the commitment for 320 or however many it was, more security personnel that was made last fall is important, and hopefully it comes to fruition. But but this hospital violence situation, in my view anyway, is just a manifestation of so many underlying systemic problems we have in the healthcare system. And, and as usual, the governmental response is one of crisis control rather than dealing with the root of the problems proactively. And, and, and that reaction is, is going to be such a failing strategy compared to preemptive control of the problems. You mentioned the hiring or the announcement about the hiring of more security guards. And we had the BC Nurses Union on the show yesterday, the president of that union, saying that there wasn't really a, a hard timeline for that and that there are still some healthcare settings that don't have security personnel or, or, or don't have those numbers up. Do you think it would make a big difference if, and I know it's, it's not being proactive, but would it make a big difference if well, those security guards were there? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going to hurt. So certainly it's important. Um, I think the security guards should be there. Unfortunately, that's the society we live in. But listen, I, I mean, I spent 17 years south of the border, and I, I don't want Canada, British Columbia to turn into the United States when it comes to security. We're, we're, I'd like to think we're not there yet. And really, again, it's it's about not dealing with the problems. I mean, from a pop, why is this violence happening? From a population perspective, lack of mental health support, housing insecurity, the toxic drug crisis, they're, they're all contributors. And if people have to realize that individuals that come to hospitals often do so during the worst days of their lives. I mean, they're dealing with pain, trauma, loss, all in the context of a physical and or mental illness. And from a healthcare worker perspective, problems we've seen with employee retention, certainly that have been exacerbated by the pandemic, crowded hospitals, as evidenced by all the reports of saturated emergency rooms in this province, and of course the cancer care announcement yesterday. And at the height of it all, a complete failure to listen to healthcare workers. We have no whistleblower protection for healthcare workers. 
We have a minister of health who denies the reality that doctors and nurses are bringing forward to the public and protections mandatory for people who are willing to tell the truth. I mean, just the other day, a group of healthcare professionals penned a letter describing the, the toxicity at Surrey Memorial Hospital, but were forced to stay anonymous at a fair a fear of retribution for speaking out. And, and that's something I can obviously speak to firsthand all too often. I'm glad that you brought that up because I was hoping to get your response to at least part of the letter. And, and as you mentioned, so this was the anonymous letter put forward by doctors and uh, talking about Surrey Memorial Hospital. Uh, the first point it says, it says we lack, with a lack of acute care beds, admitted patients are waiting in the emergency department instead of on the ward. These patients take up beds and nursing support that would normally be used to treat incoming emergencies. The bed block forces us to routinely treat strokes, heart attacks, traumas, miscarriages, and palliative patients in the hallway. We care for vulnerable patients in waiting rooms, corridors, and unmonitored treatment zones, often for days. Elderly patients become more confused and are forced to endure their illness without privacy or comfort. And it goes on to say this is completely unacceptable and getting worse. How do you, I mean, Thank goodness they wrote this letter and they've put this out there. But but how do you look at that scenario? How did we get to that point? <laughs> well, I, I wish that story was unique. It's not. I mean, these reports like are appearing almost daily now from a variety of hospitals across the province. I mean, it's such a combination of issues. It's a supply and demand thing right now. The demand is higher than the supply, and and that hasn't been recognized by the powers that be in the provincial government. They don't. Re- I mean, we're supposed to be out of respiratory season. Why do we have all these sick patients? It's not a surprise why we have all these sick patients. Why do we have people that are in hallways? Because we have a lot of patients and not enough people to care for them, not enough capacity. And why is that? It's because of all the crises we've seen over the past number of years exacerbating the 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 supply in terms of healthcare workers and again i mean it, it, you just wait for the news every day which which health authority or which hospital is going to report the crisis next and if we don't deal with the root of these problems we're never going to get on top of it. It's just going to be crisis control after crisis control. But when we see a letter like this, though, that goes into such detail explaining what's happening at Surrey Memorial, and like you said, it's not only happening at Surrey Memorial, and this comes not long after we had a big flashy news announcement that the government had reached a deal with nurses, there was going to be a new ratio, it was going to be one-on-one-to-one in some areas that the nurse-patient ratio was going to be brought in. How can those two things be happening simultaneously? How can we have a hospital that has this this happening at Surrey Memorial, but the government making all these good news announcements about more staff and smaller ratios? Well, good news announcements are good news announcements. Reality is completely different from that. Like, I, I don't understand the ratio mandate or whatever they're calling it. Where are we going to come up with all these nurses all of a sudden? I mean, you know, there are certain hospitals, not that this is a good thing, but they're operating with five, six, seven, eight, fourteen 14 to 1 nurse-patient ratios, which is abhorrent. But how are you going to mandate 1 to 1 or 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 or 4 to 1? I mean, these nurses aren't just going to come out of nowhere. They don't grow on trees. And retaining them has been a major issue. So it's fine for for them to to claim that this is what we want, and maybe that's a laudable goal, but it's nowhere near 
comprehending reality. And, and why am I talking to you today? I'm talking to you because I'm no, no longer a heart surgeon. Uh, and there's a lot of people like me that have exited the world of clinical medicine for a variety of reasons that maybe could have been prevented. And um, that's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. So um, I just don't think that the announcements are based in reality. They sound great, but it's just not reality. With cancer and radiation treatment, we are not prepared to have people wait. That's why this, um, as, a, as we searched out this option, an opportunity, saw that it was available, we did not hesitate to offer this. That was Health Minister Adrian Dix making the announcement yesterday that patients starting on May 29th will be heading to Bellingham in some cases to receive radiation treatment for their cancers. My guest is Dr. Sanjeev Gandhi, former chief of cardiac surgery at BC Children's Hospital, now the second deputy leader for the BC Green Party. Uh, Dr. Gandhi, what are your thoughts on what came, I think, as a big surprise to a lot of people, this move to send people to Bellingham for treatment? Yeah, it certainly came as a big surprise to me. I was quite flabbergasted by the whole thing. I mean, I think yesterday's announcement was a, a major reality check in terms of how desperate the healthcare crisis has become. I mean, just think about it. One of our most cherished social programs in British Columbia and in Canada, universal healthcare, and we're getting bailed out by a system that's much worse from a societal perspective than ours. Um, and, and the for lack of a better term, the gaslighting yesterday was was astonishing um, in terms of just not recognizing, again, the root of the problem. This isn't about building more buildings. Buildings don't fix cancer. More buildings are not the rate-limiting step in cancer care. I mean, there were comments made yesterday about uh, British Columbia has an aging population and blah, blah, blah. That's why we, we were getting inundated by all of this. Well, that's just not reality in terms of what's happening. Like, breast cancer is not an old woman disease. It's not. That's why recommendations south of the border are now that screening mammograms should happen starting at the age of 40. Um, I'm a lot older than 40. I consider 40 pretty darn young. So uh, it's not just an old person disease. And what was missing in the whole discussion yesterday was why. Why do more patients need radiation? And why, again, is demand outpacing supply? To answer that, you need to understand what radiation therapy is. Radiation is often most commonly used as part of a treatment regimen, not just the only treatment modality. So it's either called neoadjuvant therapy, which means it's done before surgery to shrink tumors to make them more operable, or adjuvant therapy after surgery to treat cancer that was left behind because it wasn't amenable to surgical excision or to minimize the potential for local recurrence. And so that begs the question, are patients in British Columbia, specifically those with breast and prostate cancer, which is the population we're sending south, presenting with more advanced stages of cancer? And is that the reason radiation is now more necessary? And if so, why? Why? Does it have to do with poor detection in B.C.? poor prostate and breast cancer screening? And if that's the case, why? Is this because we have poor primary care access? One in five British Columbians don't have access to a primary care doc or nurse practitioner who are the health care providers that usually find early cancer? Again, without answering these questions and without providing us with the real tangible data, we're just reacting to another crisis 
rather than being proactive about getting to the root of the problem. And I think that is what some of the, the response has been, that on the one hand, it was something, I'm sure it wasn't what the health minister wanted to announce yesterday. So on the one hand, it's good, I suppose, that people who need this treatment, uh, because we know people aren't getting treatment in a timely way, in, in the recommended timely way in many cases. So at least they will be getting access to that treatment. But again, BC used to be a leader when it came to cancer care. So what has happened? Well, exactly. Um, I mean, I think you have to look at the governance of healthcare to answer that question. BC Cancer is under the auspices of the Provincial Health Services Authority, which also controls BC Ambulance or Health Emergency Services, uh, which also controls BC Children's Hospital, all of which have had major administrative problems in the past few years. I mean, you have to, you have to go where where the where the administration's happening and the buck has to stop somewhere. I mean, you also say that it's a good thing. Sure, it's a good thing that people who aren't getting care will now somehow get care, but you have to look at this in the context of the whole system. Again, I practiced in the United States for 17 years, and, and we know how much medical therapeutics in the U.S. cost. They can cost up to 10 times as much as the same therapeutics in Canada. In fact, in 2020, there was a study about the cost of systemic therapy for metastatic colorectal cancer in Western Washington, so close to us, Western Western Washington State versus British Columbia, and the cost was immensely higher for patients in Washington State than in British Columbia, and probably underestimated in the study because that U.S. data relied on insurance claims, which are way cheaper than cost to a private payer. But this added cost didn't translate into any difference in overall survival. So, And that was without factoring in the currency exchange rate. So we have to think about this. I mean, what's it going to cost? The higher cost of U.S. healthcare, the cost of travel and accommodation for these folks, the huge administrative ads that were referenced to yesterday to facilitate care in Washington state. That stuff's all going to add up very quickly for the 5,000 patients who are being targeted. So where is this money coming from? Could it be better spent? Could those patients get care at home, if that money was directed at home rather than to an immensely expensive healthcare system? Yeah, and, and I think the number that they put out yesterday was $35 million over two years uh, to treat as many as 4,800 patients in Bellingham. But, uh, but as you know, and uh, people know, oftentimes the costs end up being a lot more. Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, just the, the concept of of British Columbia relying on the United States to bail us out is somewhat nauseating to me um, as a as a as a, C- a Canadian boy, you know, who was bred in this country, who who ended up in the states for longer than he wanted to, and came back to Canada because of my love of socialized medicine. I mean, I left the United States for a couple of reasons, but primarily because I wanted to come back to a system where where the wallet didn't control health care. And, and now we're sending patients to the United States. It's a little bit Twilight Zone-ish for me. All right. Well, Dr. Gandhi, I appreciate so much your time today and for joining us to talk about this, what is a very long list of things making news in the healthcare sector right now. Thank you so much, and I hope to have you back on the show soon. Anytime. 
This is the kind of phone call, if you are a business owner, you certainly don't want to be on the receiving end of this. A call saying that, well, there was a very brazen attempt of breaking into your shop. That is, however, what happened to Olivia Yao, who is the co-founder of a store called Urban Machina in Kitsilano. And Olivia Yao is with us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. Thank uh, you for where is me. well? Thank you. Where is your shop located? Uh, we're on Cypress Street in the Kitsilano area. All right, and you got this phone call about an attempted break-in. Tell us what happened. Um, so we received a call from our security company uh, company at about four a.m. Um, that there was an attempted break-in, um, and when we got to the scene, the officers were already there, and we just saw the damage that was done. And this was more than, uh, say, somebody uh, smashing a window or, or trying to get through the lock. What had uh, thieves or the, the thief wannabes, what had they done? Um, they actually tried to drive an SUV through our front door. Um, they tried twice, actually. Um, however, our, our gate uh, was pretty secure and they weren't able to actually get through. Um, but it, it's quite a big damage. So they tried to drive an SUV twice through, and, and I, have, I saw a photo of this, so it looks like they, they broke the glass, obviously. Did they, did they manage to break the doors right off? Um, they did. Um, the doors were really just hanging um, by, you know, one of the, the connectors. Um, so everything was pretty much smashed and broken. Um, they weren't able to make it in. Um, they did, however, uh, dislodge the entire frame from the concrete, um, so the structural integrity is, is compromised. Wow. And did they, did they take off with anything, or did they, were they able to steal anything? Uh, they weren't able to, no. Uh, which I guess is, is a good thing, but uh, any idea how much damage and, and how long it's going to take to fix it? Um, I'd say the repairs were, were probably looking at uh, anywhere from um, ten to twenty thousand. And um, speaking to the glass company yesterday, um, they did say it would take a couple of months to just get everything ready um, because they also need to be approved by Strata, so that takes a while. Um, so we're probably looking at the shop won't open for at least a month or so. Wow. And and I should have mentioned this right off the top, but can you tell us again, what kind of things uh, do you sell? What's inside the shop? Um, we have a variety of different models of electric scooters, um, which, uh, you know, this is our peak season. And I'm sure if you if you take a look on the street and on the bike lanes, you'll, you'll see plenty. Right. And so with that store now being shut down, and you mentioned that it kind of, there was a structural issue because the doors were broken off. Is that, is that part of the delay as well or why it's going to take some time to get it back up and able to open again? Yeah, for sure. I think it needs to be inspected um, just to ensure it's safe. Have you been broken into before? Uh, we have at our other location, um, but it was more like a, just like a smash and grab, um, nothing to this extent where someone tries to drive a car through your store. Uh, and you mentioned that the, the police were there when you got there after getting that call and uh, was and your security system. Do you have video or was that ca- captured on your security system? It was. It was captured on our system, yes. 
Do you see then what, what, what was it more than one person in the SUV or could you see anything else as far as what they did after they tried smashing through the door a couple of times? Yeah, I believe there were four of them. Um, one driver and then the other three obviously trying to see if they can open the gate after the, the attempted uh, crash. What went through your mind when you were watching that on your security camera footage? Uh, well, I was shocked and angry um, that something like this can happen to a small business. And especially we're in a very quiet and nice neighborhood in Kitsilano. Um, it really is all residential. So, you know, imagine you living upstairs or across the street and seeing something like this happen. Like You don't feel safe anymore. Hmm. And, and so just to be clear, so when you saw this on the video, so they twice tried to ram through the door with the SUV and then do the three others, did they get out then and they, they physically started trying to get through the gate? Yes, yeah. Huh. Uh, have police said anything as far as uh, their investigation or if, if this is uh, something that, they, that they've seen happen elsewhere or anything? Uh, have they told you anything? Uh, no, um, I believe they're still investigating, so we haven't heard anything yet. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned, too, that you don't feel safe, that if somebody is so brazen, well, four people are, are so brazen that they, they could try and do this. I mean, I, I get that, too, and I'm sure other businesses and residents are thinking, well, if, if they've done this once, what's to stop them from trying again? Yeah, exactly. I, I feel for the people in that neighborhood. Hmm. So this store will be shut down then uh, for uh, at least a month, it sounds like. You mentioned that, that your other store uh, has been broken into, which is also unfortunate. But my guess is now you'll have to be operating completely out of the other store for the time being? Yeah, uh, out of the other store and online. All right. And uh, again, it's Urban Machina, if uh, people want to, to check that out. Uh, how do you kind of, just kind of your final thoughts on this? I, we've talked to a lot of business owners, unfortunately, that uh, have been broken into and, and have had their glass smashed on several occasions. And, and like you said, it leaves you feeling not safe but, and angry as well. What, what do you think, what would you like to see done or what could be done to stop this? Um, I, I think, you know, this problem stems from, you know, a lot of different things. Um, but uh, more police presence, I think, would, would be a first step as well. Um, you know, just patrolling. I mean, if they know that there are regular patrols in the area, that would definitely decrease the chance of them wanting to try anything. Um, so I think that's a good start. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much, uh, Olivia, for joining the show and for talking uh, about this uh, and unfortunately uh, talking uh, about uh, this horrible thing that has happened to your business. But thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. Well, we have been talking about the announcement it was made yesterday about sending some patients from BC, those in need of radiation therapy with breast cancer or prostate cancer, sending patients to clinics in Bellingham for that therapy. Dr. Kim Nguyen-Chi is the Chief Medical Officer with BC Cancer and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for making the time today. Hello, Jill, and uh, thanks for having me. Well, I think this announcement came as a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. Well, on the one hand, it's very good to hear that people are going to have faster access to the treatment that they need, but also a bit surprising that BC is sending patients to Bellingham. Why is it necessary to send up to 4,800 people to Bellingham for treatment? 
Well, it's necessary because radiation needs to be delivered in a timely manner. And, and certainly, you know, waiting for your treatments, whatever it is, waiting for cancer treatment is uh, even one day is a real challenge for folks. And so we want to get people to receive their treatment as soon as possible. Um, and so we have an increasing demand for cancer services, including radiation therapy. And unfortunately, it's outstripped our supply to be able to deliver it in as timely fashion as we would like to. Uh, by having patients go down to Bellingham, we can increase capacity across the whole system. And why are we seeing the increased demand for radiation, do you think? Well, there's, uh, there are two main reasons. Well, we're seeing an increasing uh, incidence in, uh, and prevalence of cancer, and that's because of an increasing population. Our, our BC population grows every year. Um, and as well as our population ages, cancer becomes more common. So there's an increase in cancer diagnosis every year of about 3%, and an increase in prevalence, meaning the numbers of people with cancer that are living with cancer getting treatment for cancer, by 5%. So um, this steady increase uh, is, is uh, resulting in this increased demand, um, and then we have to meet, the, meet those needs for our patients. Is it? Do you, do you think linked as well? And when you talk about it, it makes sense with the numbers with an increasing population. But if we talk about breast cancer, which is one of the cancers that's included in this program to send people to Bellingham, that's not really. It's not only a, an, an aging person's cancer, and that's why you know the screening is is much younger. Is it because people aren't getting screened? Is it because people don't have family physicians, and and cancers are becoming more advanced before they're detected? Uh, no, I, I, that's not the case. In fact, the people that we're going to be sending down for radiation therapy uh, with breast cancer, for example, would be those with localized cancer um, that has been treated with surgery. But what we do is we need to follow up some, with some radiation therapy afterwards. It's part of the, the curative regimen. And the same goes with our patients with prostate cancer that we're also beginning to be sending down or offering the option to go down for treatment. Um, these are gentlemen that have localized prostate cancer, so it is curative treatment. Uh, we selected these two groups, number one, because um, uh, they're the largest groups of people that get receive radiation therapy in BC. Um, number two, sometimes they're waiting the longest for treatment, so we would like to speed that up. But number three, the nature of their cancer and the nature of the prescription, the radiation prescription, also makes it more amenable for them to travel for their treatment. You know, we want to deliver treatment as close to home as for people as, as possible. Um, and so, but, you know, this is, if we need to have people travel, then at least we want to be sure to select folks that uh, it's uh, as uh, least of a burden on them as possible. Right. So, and, and you kind of touched on this, uh, but the, the radiation treatment, part of a bigger care plan for people that are getting cancer treatment. So are all of the people, the patients who will be sent to Bellingham, this is all radiation treatment that's coming after they've had some other kind of treatment for their cancer? Well, for the uh, women with breast cancer, yes, that would be the case. They would uh, have received generally surgery to, uh, for their breast cancer, and this is to follow up with some radiation um, uh, for their cancer. So it is part of the curative regimen. Uh, for patients with prostate cancer, they, uh, they are more likely to have, this would be their primary treatment for their prostate cancer. And uh, you, you also touched on this, but so why is it then that we have the capacity in BC where somebody can get the surgery, somebody can get part of the treatment, but they can't get the radiation in a timely way? 
While radiation is all delivered within our BC Cancer Centres and it's delivered by specialized folks uh, using specialized equipment, the Linux, or these are the radiation treatment machines. Um, our main limitation right now, though, is people. Um, and although we've uh, had a large amount of investment over the last couple of years to hire folks and get them in, uh, there is actually a, a nationwide as well as worldwide shortage of some of the key folks that um, help deliver radiation therapy or are part of the group that uh, deliver radiation therapy. Right now, uh, for example, radiation therapists who are key members of that care team, uh, we have 50 vacancies, um, meaning we, we have 50 people we're trying to hire into these positions. Um, and that's one of our major limitations in being able to have enough um, uh, uh, capacity to treat patients. But we are working on very hard on this. And I'm, you know, this is a, a, a temporary solution. And um, I'm really confident that we'll be able to solve this so that we can get treatment closer to home for everybody. Right. But th that same seems like a lot that there are 50 vacancies. Uh, but when you say there's a worldwide shortage of people that can deliver radiation therapy, I mean, there must not be a shortage in Washington state, given that there are three clinics that were announced yesterday that are not are, are able to do not only people that live in Washington, they're able to take almost 5000 people from B.C., yeah, it's a delivery. It's a different. Um, uh, it's a different system, uh, of course, and it's a, a different model of system in the U.S., which is actually pretty unique in the world, um, and, and the U.S. system. So it's fortunate that they are able to uh, take on these uh, additional patients with a, a maximum of, that we're planning of about 4,800 people over the next uh, two years. Now, we have to remember, that's on a background of about 14,000 people that we're treating with radiation therapy in BC every year. Um, this will increase the capacity so we can really shorten those wait times while we uh, continue to build our capacity over this next year. How is it a, a different system? Uh, it's a private, uh, purely private medical system, so it's a it's a different system in terms of how care is delivered. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought you meant it was a different a different type of delivery. It was a different oh, no, radiation. No. But the radiation therapy itself is that the same as what somebody would get in BC? Exactly. Yes, it'll be exactly the same, and often on the same equipment, uh, same software, and so on. Correct. Uh, yeah, I meant a diff different healthcare. Right. Delivery system. Yeah. Well, well, yes, and 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 one that uh, our government has been very much opposed to, which I think is also why it was a, a bit surprising to hear uh, this announcement, uh, um, Doctor. Uh, you said that it, that it is temporary, that this is going to be happening over the next two years. How can you be sure? How can you uh, be so confident that it is going to be temporary, given that, that this is a pretty extreme measure, that patients are being sent to the United States for treatment? How do you know it's going to be temporary? Um, well, I, number one, I, I think that uh, this um, process to send people to the U.S. for their treatment is putting patients first. So, I, you know, regardless of the politics of it, I think it's, uh, it's a sign that, you know, uh, uh, that we're putting patients first across the system because that's most important. Um, number two, I, it's, there's been several provinces, including this one, that in the past have sent patients to the U.S., Ontario has done it. Quebec has done it. Um, BC did it back in the 90s so uh, for their cancer treatments, specifically for radiation treatment. Um, so I don't think it is a, uh, it's a unique occurrence in you know, Canadian healthcare systems across the country. 
Um, and I'm confident that we're going to be able to um, build that capacity because of the recent announcement of the 10-year cancer plan, which gives us goals, but also the in- investments that have been made, not only this year, but in the last couple of years of trying to rebuild our system, renew it, revitalize it with the goal of providing, you know, uh, really uh, top-notch cancer care in B.C., Right. And, and uh, doctor, I know that, that you're not on, on, in the political realm of this and, and you're not uh, you're, you're the doctor, you're the medical side. But if, if we were truly putting patients first, wouldn't we have done something? Wouldn't uh, as a province? And I get, like you said, that, that patients have been sent to the states before. I don't think they've been sent on this scale, though, that we, we've ever had 5000, almost 5000 patients. I mean, if we were truly putting patients first, wouldn't somebody have stopped the system from get, becoming this broken? in the first place? Yeah, I think we have to go back uh, 15 or 20 years and start examining, uh, you know, how we got into the situation we have. I don't think it's a problem that has occurred over the last couple of years. And in fact, I think the entire system has been working hard to try to fix things over the last couple of years. Um, so I don't disagree with you, but uh, I, at the same time, I think, you know, we're very forward-looking now. Um, I think we all have the tools to do it. For example, you know, the, the, those key people, radiation therapists, they've just, uh, we've been able to increase their salaries and uh, make us more competitive. Um, and I'm confident that we can recruit those much needed folks uh, to BC. Are there any plans at this point, or do you see a scenario where this could expand, even being temporary, that other patients in BC, maybe even with other types of cancer, could also be sent to, to the States for treatment? Um, I think we're going to have to see how we've prioritized uh, folks with breast cancer and prostate cancer and, and, you know, specific stages of the disease, again, for uh, the most amenable treatment. But we'll have to see what uh, the uptake is, um, how desirable people like to go, and we could expand that uh, eligibility as we get the systems worked out uh, for all sorts of folks if if they so desire to get the treatment in in the U.S. Now, we've selected those folks. Again, it's more about... um, the ease of travel and amenability to travel uh, to see how to see how it goes, but really it, it's around expanding capacity for everybody. So if some folks get their treatment down in the U.S., that uh, is helpful for everybody to and get their time their radiation in a timely manner. All right, Dr. Kim Nguyen Chi, appreciate that you make the time for us today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thank you for having me. Well, the federal government today introduced new legislation aimed at reforming Canada's bail system. This comes after months and many calls for tougher laws from provinces and territories. Take a quick listen to this from the federal justice minister, David Lametti. The goal of Bill C-48 is improving public safety. At the same time, we want to make sure that these law reforms do not make things worse for Indigenous people, black people, and other vulnerable groups who we know are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. This was recognized in the communique following our FPT meeting in March, and I know this is a priority that my provincial and territorial counterparts share. So what does this legislation actually aim to do? Rob Danu joins us now, former federal Crown prosecutor, also a criminal defense lawyer, co-founder of Danu Dhaliwal Law Group. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jill, and uh, kudos for bringing this topic up uh, for your audience. It is important. 
Well, it is important, and I think there's, there is already a bit of pushback looking at what Bill C-48 is proposing and questions about whether or not this is actually going to make communities safer, which is something that the federal minister said. Uh, can we go through a little bit of what's created it or what's included in this bill and uh, get your take on that? Oh, don't get me started, Jill. So in terms of the bill itself, the, uh, it, it brings changes to the bail system. So those that are charged with a serious violent offense with a weapon, mind you, uh, and who've been convicted of a similar offense within the last five years, they're going to be in what's called a reverse onus situation. And what that means is that the defense or the accused is going to have to show a judge why they should be released on bail rather than the prosecutor having to show that. And, and do you think that will make a difference? Well, there's only one problem with the legislation, Jill, and I think that's going to have negligible uh, to no real effect on you know, what the real issue is these days, which is the what well, we what the perceived issue, anyways, which is increasing random violent crime. If we take a look at the crime statistics, crime continues to go down generally as it has for many years. But when we watch the news, when we watch social media, when we walk in our cities we see what appears to be more random violence. And people are concerned, and they should be. We want these cities uh, and our streets to be safe for ourselves and our children. So Bill C-48 is it's a political response to this problem. And I emphasize the word political because, in my view, it does nothing to address the actual root cause of increased random violence that we're seeing. Right. And being whether it's mental illness or, or what it is that's causing somebody to, to do this, uh, to be well, uh, the, the perpetrator of, of these random uh, random attacks. Exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. And I think we all know what is really going on in a general way. So I'll say there's three primary issues. Number one, homelessness. And that's related, to, related of course, to the cost of living crisis. Number two, it's mental health, just as you've indicated, Jill. Uh, issues related to the pandemic, the continued lack of resources, and we've been talking about that for years and years. And number three, the fentanyl crisis and the addiction issue that goes along with that. So those are the three primary issues on a very macro view. These are all very tough issues that require a lot of money, a lot of will, a lot of time to address. And as usual, in terms of the political response, it's a lot easier, quicker, and cheaper to beat the drum of getting tough on crime. Right. And so will this, though, I mean, is this much different than uh, in the past when uh, under the Conservative government uh, bringing in mandatory minimums? Is, isn't this a similar type of tactic as far as uh, when, when we're talking about dealing with crimes after they've been committed? Well, absolutely, because our bail system and our bail laws already address these issues. If an accused person goes to court and they have a history of violence and they've committed another violent act, the judge is going to take that into account in terms of whether it's actually necessary to um, release them or not, or whether they should be uh, kept in custody. And a judge will keep that individual in custody if it's appropriate. And the Supreme Court of Canada, Section 11 of our charter, guarantees the right to reasonable bail. So what we're trying to do is we're striving for a balance in Canada between keeping our streets safe and maintaining a free and democratic society. If you want laws to make a difference, you have to difference. You have to get extreme. You have to do what uh, we see in authoritarian states and go to the extreme end of the spectrum.
When you when you say that, though, that judges do have that discretion and they're going to look at somebody's past history, but and which they do. But then we also keep hearing these stories about somebody who's been arrested and, oh, he's been or she has been you know, arrested more than 100 times or has this this long history. So I, th- I think while we know that judges have that discretion, we're also seeing so many cases of people and, and the questions are being asked, well, why was that person out at all? Exactly. So what a judge does, he has to, or he or she has to balance uh, the what's going on with the accused person before them. So if an individual has a mental health history or has um, uh, any type of history that can be dealt with, with reasonable conditions of bail, the judge is going to release them. But when we, when we have prolific offenders, we do see those individuals being kept in custody. So what we don't hear about in the news is when an individual has a long record and they are detained. They're actually kept in custody. We only hear the stories about when they're released. Right. And, and so when you talk, though, about uh, different, uh, different systems that we've seen in, in other kind of more authoritarian states, what would, what would the, the main difference then be as far as and not suggesting that that's what people want here, although I, I think some do when we open up the phone lines, but what, what would that look like if we went at least even a little bit down that road? Well, you can't go a little bit down the road. If you want to actually have laws make a difference, you have to go all the way down the road. If you go a little way down the road, then you get what, what, what's happening in the United States. You know, they're very tough on crime in the United States, both in terms of bail and sentence. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why isn't the United States one of the safest places on Earth? It's not. So if you want to have laws make a difference, you have to go to extreme punishments like you see in Singapore or the United Arab Emirates, where you have individuals who are sentenced to death for uh, trafficking in very small amounts of narcotics. Hmm. And again, I don't think anyone's suggesting that that's what we should be doing here. But getting back to what you mentioned, and that's looking at the core root of, of why these crimes are happening, why we're seeing stranger attacks and, and why this is happening. Uh, is that something that that could be done alongside these reforms to the bail system? Or would that be a better way of looking at it? Well, absolutely. And the problem is, once again, it's a long-term solution. It requires a lot of resources, and it's not politically expedient. So the easiest thing to do is what we're seeing, and what we see over and over, there's, there's a pendulum, and we see the same drum beaten uh, after a certain number of years uh, when these issues arise. So absolutely, we can, do, we, can have bail, we can have reform in the law if it's needed, and we should also be addressing the root causes at the same time. And that's the only way to actually deal with these issues. Uh, so looking again at this, this idea of the reverse onus and uh, the bill specifically targeting repeat offenders in cases that involve any kind of weapon, uh, it's expanded, I think, the firearms offenses that, that would trigger that reverse onus. Uh, how long do you think does something like this need to be in place or, or will we potentially start seeing differences if it is passed when, once it's in place? No, my view is that you are, we are not going to see a difference with this legislation in place. The system that we have is going to function very similarly to what it does um, now. And until we actually address the root problems, uh, we are not going to see um, anything that will move the, um, move the metric in any way. You know, we only have to ask one question to see whether this legislation will actually address the cause of increased random violence. And that is, if bail laws are the problem, then why didn't we see this level of random violence pre-pandemic? Because bail laws have not changed in any significant way during that time. Right. No, it's it's very, very uh, true. All right, Rob, thank you so much uh, for joining the show, for talking more about this. Thank you, Joe. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. 
We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.